This is Surviving Ministry, conversations designed to help you last longer and grow stronger in ministry. I'm your host, Seth Stevens. And I was ministering as a layperson and teaching and studying the Bible. Now, your blood doesn't become Bibline just by reading and studying. Your blood becomes Bibline by putting it into practice. You know, what, are, what do I need to do to be fruitful and effective and faithful in the ministry that I have? So if you've got a message, you know, it's a burning message, and it, it affects your whole body. You've got to have your whole life integrated into your ministry and your ministry integrated into your life. Okay, I was afraid you were going to ask that because uh, now you're exposing my weaknesses that get covered. This episode's guest is Sandy Wilson, and we talk about just about everything. We talk about transitions from business to ministry, deciding to leave a church after 22 years. We discuss patterns of prayer and work, sermon preparation, how to align a staff, modeling leadership when you were overruled, and the importance of taking on a pastoral identity and much, much more. Uh, just a note, there was a little audio interference in this podcast, and at one point I briefly stopped to try and fix it. But interestingly enough, that led us to talking about embodied preaching, so I left it in. Without further ado, here is episode two of Surviving Ministry. Today on Surviving Ministry, I have uh, a, the privilege to be working with Sandy Wilson. Sandy's been a pastor for many years in, in Memphis and is now doing some consulting work as well as interim church work. Um, for his denomination. Sandy's actually one of the reasons why I started this podcast. When I was first in ministry, I was uh, kind of struggling, kind of uh, getting beaten down in the initial barrage of uh, ministry responsibilities as a part of a new position and came to him really to help me out. And uh, the advice he gave was really good, really insightful, really encouraging for me. And I just thought, I've, I've got to get this information out to other people. So thank thank you, Sandy, for number one, helping me. Uh, and number two, joining us today to, to talk a little bit about your experiences in ministry and to share some of what God's taught you throughout the years. I'm always glad to be with you, Seth. <laughs> um, now, you actually didn't start out in ministry, the Lord brought you into ministry kind of uh, through a roundabout way. Uh, do you mind sharing how, how the Lord called you into ministry and what that transition was like? Yeah, I, I started off uh, you know, in undergraduate work. I uh, did electrical engineering, believe it or not. But before I finished my degree, I realized I'm not really cut out to be a professional engineer. So I started uh, selling in the sales and marketing department for a Bethlehem Steel Corporation, and they moved me to New England. I'd grown up in church, but I really wasn't converted at, the, at that point. Yeah. But but I was married, and Alice and my wife also had grown up in church, but I think she would say, too, she was not converted at that point. So we were really good hypocrites, but not regular hypocrites. <laughs> it's a, a dangerous uh, skill to have. That's right. So we would attend church, oh, twice a year, just to kind of touch base with our history. Yeah. And uh, what happened was I went to a church, you know, in, on my six-month cycle and 
got nabbed. <laughs> yeah. And just for, through some gracious people who just wouldn't let us go. And it's a longer story I won't go into. So that's so they how, kind of grabbed you and latched onto you. And they did. They wouldn't. They actually wouldn't let me get my child out of the nursery until I went to the <laughs> coffee hour. Oh wow! And so uh, I went to the coffee hour, and that's when things began. So they so, they held your child hostage. They did actually. Yeah, I mean in a nice way. So uh, six weeks later, we got converted in that oh, wow. church in New England, and uh, I never dreamt of being a pastor. Yeah. Uh, but I did. How get, old were you when that? That occurred. I was converted at 25. 25, okay. Yeah, and I did, Seth, I found out later that that's for people in full-time Christian service or in pastoral work, that's relatively late. Yeah. Uh, I was with a group of pastors. Well, actually, it was the uh, Gospel Coalition. Yeah. Initial group of 50 pastors or so. Mark Dever was kind of, you know, introducing us to each other, and so he had us sit down, and he said, everybody stand up. Those who are converted, you know, at the age of, Eight, sit down. Mm. About half the crowd sat down. And on and on it went. These are all pastors. And I was one of the two last standing yeah. who had been converted in their 20s. So what, I, that really dawned on me that it's important that we reach youth. Mm-hmm. And I wish, I wish I had been converted much earlier because it puts you on a track of preparation much earlier. Now, folks like me who get converted late, we can still be pastors, but yeah. you feel like you're swimming upstream a bit. Do you think there's some advantages to it in, in reaching people who come to Christ later or having a, a passion for that? There is, but um, there is. Uh, I certainly have a higher sympathy mm-hmm. for men and women in the workplace who are Christians because yeah. I know how many times I failed spiritually in the workplace. So I have a much, probably a deeper sympathy mm-hmm. than some other pastors might. But what I'm saying is, I don't think I was as well-developed yeah. as some of my colleagues who pastored similar churches. You, you felt like you had to play catch up a little bit. I did, bit. I did. And even you know, in undergraduate school, uh, you know, to delve into the liberal arts and to be examining God's creation from a Christocentric perspective, I think is really helpful, and I missed all that. Yeah. So I, I've always rude the fact that I came to Christ late, even though, as you point out, I have to say there were some advantages, but they're they're on the backside. Yeah. So um, from that, that, that was your conversion experience. Then how did the Lord start drawing you into ministry? Yeah, I was. I had a real sense, a good, you know, reformed evangelical sense of uh, being a Christian in, in the workplace, and that yeah. my work was as valuable as anybody else's, mm-hmm. including the pastor. However, uh, each spring I would be sure that I was in Boston. I, I lived in the Boston area. Yeah. And I traveled the region. But when uh, Park Street Church had their missions conference, I always planned to be in Boston so I could walk across the common and go to Park Street Church. And uh, I went, and, and the sermons were on Jonah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to say it except that I had this sensation that I was on my way to Tarshish. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And the Lord just convicted me that I was, you know, I was 28 at the time. And I just had this sense that, you know, with the years I likely had ahead of me, that I was not investing them in the best way. Mm. That was the deep conviction. And I really wrestled over it because I did not want to be disrupted out of my work. Yeah. But the Lord just worked me over. At, at what age was that? 27, 28. 27, 28. So yeah. about three years after that. That's right. It was three experience. years after conversion. Okay. But meanwhile, I had been involved in teaching in the church, leading youth. Yeah. You know, someone was asking me just today, 
you know, I think I want to be in pastoral ministry. You know, how do I confirm that? And I just say, get in ministry. Yeah. You know, and that's what I did. That's how that's how it all happened. It was organic. And I was ministering as a layperson and teaching and studying the Bible. And so you can't minister before you decide to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's living. exactly yeah. right. And then what happens is the church just sucks it out of you. They they draw you in mm-hmm. and they're basically looking you at you and saying, would you allow us to lay aside some of your time and send you to seminary? Mm. That's basically what happened. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, you've you've recently gone through a, kind of a, a different transition. We'll, we'll we'll go from the beginning a little bit to the end. And uh, you, you've recently um, retired from Second Pres, the, being the senior minister there. I'm, I'm not sure what y'all call, do. Y'all call it the senior minister there. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, retired from that, but not retired from the ministry. And now you're kind of entering into a, a new phase of ministry. You're doing some consulting. You're doing some interim church work. How did you how did you decide it was it, it was time for you to transition, and um, what have you what have you kind of enjoyed in the, in this new season of ministry? Yeah, it has been a transition. It's, it's been a good one. I was at Second Presbyterian in Memphis for twenty two years. Oh wow! And I had thought in you know a decade ago that I'd probably serve until I was about sixty nine. But what happened was I uh, I'm now sixty seven. And I retired two years ago. So the reason I, re- well, I retired at 66. So it was a year, yeah, uh, almost two years ago. So the reason I did, Seth, was that I've been in uh, you know, pastoral work long enough to know that every church goes through seasons. Yeah. And sometimes you feel a little besieged. There are things going on that, that are deeply spiritual sometimes where things are they're just rocky roads. And then sometimes you're in a real pleasant, broad, open space. And I realized as I got closer to 70 that uh, it was putting things at risk a little bit to assume that when I got to 69, that was going to be a good time to retire. Yeah. But I knew at 64, this is a good time. Yeah. So uh, rather than uh, minimizing my options by letting the clock go on, I Mm. thought, ah, let's go now. So... I announced two years ahead of time. You never want to leave when everybody says, yeah, it was time. <laughs> well, that's true, too. You want to leave when they say, yeah, oh, well, we'd love to keep you. That's true, but you also don't want to leave when you have major problems. Oh, yeah. And if you know, if we'd had major problems, I wouldn't have retired because that's just that doesn't leave the church in good health. The bottom line answer is this for maybe some of your older listeners who are thinking about how you make a transition or when you make a transition. This doesn't answer it completely, but it gives you the framework. And the framework is this. What is in the interest of this church? Mm. That's your only question. It has nothing to do with your retirement program, your financial state, what you want to do, whether your family is adjusted or not. Those things are not the first questions. Those are all second questions. The first question is, what is in the interest of the people you're serving? And if you can really get your mind in that frame, you are, you're going to be in a much better place to make a wise decision. So, yeah. for example, when I retired, I didn't even look at my finances until I had already decided it was in Second Presbyterian's interest for me to make this transition now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it really worked out well. They had a, we had a wonderful transition season, yeah. and Dr. George Robertson has come in and is doing a wonderful job, so I'm very yeah. grateful. But it's that that 
paradigm shift for most people. You've got to get outside your own skin, your own interests, and really think of the people you're serving. Yeah. Uh, from earlier conversations we've had, w- one of the things I want to ask you about is, you know, m- maintaining kind of a, a sense of order uh, in your own spiritual life, in, in your devotional life, as you get into ministry. Because, I, you know, when I was kind of uh, thrown into a, a position where it seemed as though the responsibilities outweighed my competency, um, it, you know, it, it was a real struggle to Okay, how do I how do I get everything done, and then how do I keep the how do I keep the important things from being overwhelmed by the urgent things? Because in ministry, there's there's so many urgent things, whether it's funerals or uh, crisis of leadership or or things like that that approach you. Um, do you have any advice for people who are dealing with those type of issues? Yeah, you know, sometimes you have crises that come upon you, you know, two funerals in one week or three funerals in one week or things like that, or someone is on their deathbed last minute on a Saturday afternoon, and you just, how do you control all this? You don't. So what I I think you've got to do is to try to stay ahead of it as much as possible. So you don't wait till Saturday afternoon to prepare your sermon. You know, then you're vulnerable, you know, you're inflexible. Uh, and then you can be overwhelmed. And so you've just got to do a better job of planning. So I would say get your calendar out and take responsibility for your whole calendar. Plan it out nicely. If you if you don't decide what – if you don't deploy yourself, there are 50 other people that would be happy to tell you how to spend your life. <laughs> yeah. So you got to be able to and tell them. And they all them. believe God's on their side. <laughs> exactly. So you need to be able to tell them how you're spending your life. So I would just say on the, uh, to begin with, get on the offensive – Take the initiative. Control the calendar. So what I what I did was I uh, put the big rocks in first. You know, what do I need to do for personal devotions? What do I need to do for sermon preparation and teaching preparation? And then the rest of the time, I allowed. You know, I had the pr- pleasure and privilege of having an assistant. I allowed her to schedule the times in those blocks that I gave her, and then I'm going to schedule the time on those other blocks that I didn't give her. And those are my study time and my own personal time. Now, I can't always control that. You know, somebody can end up in the hospital. But if it's if I'm planning ahead, I usually have three or four days to manipulate the schedule to catch up to make up for the emergency. It doesn't yeah. always work. But 98% of the time it works yeah. if you'll plan ahead. Now, you mentioned putting the big rocks in first. For those who haven't heard that analogy, explain that real quick. Yeah, well, it's it's one of Stephen Covey's analogies. He says, you know, if you have a bunch of big rocks and some gravel and some sand and some water, how are you going to get it all in this big jar? If you put the sand in first, you're not going to get the big rocks in. So you put the big rocks in first, then you put the gravel, and they gather around the big rocks, and the sand will, you know, sprinkle down, and then the water. So put the big rocks in first, and then you can get everything in there. So you have to figure out what in your life are the big rocks, and your time with the Lord and cultivating your own soul and relationship with Him, and then your preparation for ministering God's Word, those are all big rocks. Yeah. And your worship times, corporately and privately. And then everything fits around that. But you got to put the pegs in first. Yeah. And then it just takes discipline to stick to it. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, ministering and maintaining the connection with the Lord, that's I think it can be difficult for ministers because everything kind of revolves around that, yet you don't always um, 
prioritize the, the private because you're doing it so much publicly, but in a lot of ways we can only give what we've got. And, right. and if we aren't maintaining that deep relationship with the Lord, it's it's hard to exhort others into something we're out of. Yeah. Um, now, f- for you, as as you kind of scheduled out your week and and your prayer life and and things like that, uh, how did you structure it? Give us, you know, your example, which can, you know, is obviously just a a template that people can use and manipulate for their yeah, own. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to do it, and, and people like to read the Bible at different rates and different ways. I just think, you know, for me, it's very helpful to get through the Bible every year. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can get Table Talk or you can get McShane's schedule or there are many other Bible reading schedules. And, you know, you, you may miss a day or two, but just pick up where you left off and seek to be reading the Bible all the time. So that, as Spurgeon says, your blood becomes bibline. Now, your blood doesn't become bibline just by reading and studying. Yeah. Your blood becomes bibline by putting it into practice. Hmm. That's how you develop wisdom: is by obedience to the Scripture, and then you you're gradually developing discernment as you obey the Lord and obey His Word. But you have to read it first. You have to learn yeah. it. So, uh, regular reading of the Bible is is essential. And I just find it so sad, Seth, that you can go in some contemporary churches that call themselves evangelical, and in the service itself, you hardly hear the Bible read, mm. and you don't hear much of the teaching from the Scriptures in the sermon even. So we, we really have got to recover the, the Bible as the source of our certainty, our, our knowledge. And then um, as far as prayer goes, uh, I'm, I'm not a great prayer. I'm more of an activist, yeah. and I know that about myself, so I have to put on a discipline. So what I do is I take each day of the week, and I break mm-hmm. up my intercessory prayer list into, into sevenths. Okay. And, you know, so each each day of the week has an assignment. And I find that it's, it's more manageable. It's And I just have to, I say that confessionally. Yeah. That I just, I'm not good enough to get through my whole list every day. So I, I But you recognize that and, and try and Yeah, I'm just accommodating to my weaknesses somewhat, but at least yeah. it keeps me from being overwhelmed. Now, what, what would you pray for on, you know, Monday through Sunday. Okay. Well, Monday, I pray for the congregation. And so, you know, if you have 3,500 members, you can't pray the whole <laughs> list, but you, you yeah. rotate it. So, you know, I'll, I'll take a certain portion of the church list each of the 52 weeks. And, oh, wow. And I can, you know, I can pray through. Uh, and so then, not just generally, you would kind of take a Rolodex and, and pray yeah. for individuals. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, in a smaller church, I, I would actually try to get all their pictures up on the on my wall, on the on a bulletin board, so that uh, for prayer and for sermon preparation, I would look at faces and think mm. about their lives while I'm preparing the sermon. That's another topic. Yeah. You know, Tuesday I pick up with my family, uh, largely my intermediate, my immediate family, and <laughs> if you know them, there's a lot to pray for. There. <laughs> we won't we won't ask you about that. <laughs> Wednesday I pray for church officers, okay, um, and as elders and deacons. Thursday. Uh, I generally pray for the world and the city uh, because that's sermon preparation day, and it mm-hmm. goes nicely with that. Friday, uh, I pray for church staff. And, you know, at Second Presbyterian, you know, we had 130 staff, so it's yeah. a lot of people to pray for. Mm-hmm. Saturday, I prayed for missionaries and pastors, uh, and that was also a good day to do that because I'm— you know, bringing this, I, I'm an audio person. I'm a, yeah. uh, instead of visual. So uh, I'm uh, 
I have a, a, a oral manuscript that I usually am working with. Hmm. So Saturday's important for me to bring it all back up and get it in my head. So it's a great day to pray for other pastors and yeah. missionaries. And then Sunday, it's praying for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, is important. Yes, it is. You need some work too. Yeah, and it's a day of rest. So yeah. you know, even, the, even though I'm ministering publicly, uh, my chief intercessory concern is my own holiness and growth in yeah. the Lord on Sunday. So that's the way I've broken it up and... You know, I can't say that I'm massively successful, but uh, it's easier than trying to pray everything every day. Yeah, for me, I'm just uh, not Martin Luther. <laughs> two to two hours a day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or three. Not, not many of us are, or Susanna Wesley. Bingo. Um, now, you mentioned that. Uh, I think you said Thursday was your preparation day, and, yeah. and you mentioned kind of some other things. So it sounds like you've not only divided up your prayer, but you've also uh, divided your work in, into certain days yeah. and categories. Uh, and I think from our last conversation, even uh, parts of the day you've you've committed to certain activities. Tell a little bit how you dedicate your time uh, throughout the week and throughout the day um, around the responsibilities of a that you had. Yeah. Well, everybody's different and every church is different. So for your uh, younger adult listeners, you know, you don't want to copy somebody else. Yeah. But the general principles maybe you can apply. Mm-hmm. And the general principle uh, would be, you know, what are what do I need to do to be fruitful and effective and faithful in the ministry that I have? What kind of time needs to be devoted to Bible study? to personal counsel, leadership development, missional engagement, uh, public appearances to do this, that, or the other. Um, you know, it's, it's just all kinds of things. So, and also I have to know my personality. I'm right on the line between extroverted and introverted, mm. so I'm equal about equally both. Yeah. So I put all that together, and what worked for me at Second Presbyterian was— you know, Monday is a big staff day. Mm-hmm. You come in from the chaos of Sunday. You're looking at the chaos of the next week. And it just seemed to me <laughs> it was good for us all to put our heads together and our hearts together on Monday. And then we can leave each other alone for the rest of the week because we're, we're <laughs> yeah. all aligned. Would, would that occur in the mornings or the evenings? Well, it, it's or, or, morning, sorry, and, afternoon. Afternoon, morning okay. and afternoon. So we you know, had staff devotions every Monday. We would worship and, and get a homily and share prayer concerns and pray for each other. The whole staff would. Mm-hmm. We also had meetings, you know, that, that are necessary, you know, liturgy meetings, worship times, uh, planning meetings, uh, all kinds of staff meetings. Yeah. All that would take place on Mondays so that you're free the rest of the week. And so if you connect and align early in the week, I found that you could kind of trust that your colleagues are going in the same direction the rest of the week. And then I would take Tuesday off. A lot of pastors take Monday off, but I much preferred to be a little tired on Monday, work hard, you know, 12 hours usually, sometimes 16 on Monday, to get everything aligned, including officers' meetings, you know, once a month on Monday nights. And by the end of that exhausting day, I was exhausted, ready for a break, but I could take a break knowing that the week was aligned Mm -hmm. and that we had worked together knowing where we're going that week. So it worked well for me to come home on Tuesday. Now to, to take us on a lit, little bit of a tangent here, you know, in, in a 
multiple staff setting. What was the process of alignment and, and, and what's its, what did you view as its core purpose in, in these meetings? Yeah, I mean, you, you have all kinds of alignment that's necessary. I mean, at the simplest level, you've got chronological alignment. You have to get your calendars together. Mm-hmm. Be sure we all know what we're doing this week and that we're not working at cross purposes and trying to have big meetings at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just a little simple. Scheduling. <laughs> yeah, just scheduling, logistics. And then problems have arisen over the weekend that we've yeah. become aware of. Or someone got sick in the hospital and we need to be sure everybody, the right people know about it and that we're on it. And then, of course, you've got philosophical alignment. Things come up, ministry programs we're going to do. How are we thinking about that? What are we trying to accomplish? And just as the senior leader, I realize you have to talk through those things all the time. Mm-hmm. Don't assume that because you said it six months ago, we're all on the same page. We're not. People so need to be reminded. <laughs> they do, and you need. To, and you know, if you're the senior minister, you, you're, you, the biggest group you want to develop is your own pastoral college. You know, so. I want to work with those guys, and especially the younger ones, and be sure they they see how ministry philosophy applies in every case, including this program we're going to do this week. Mm-hmm. What are we trying to accomplish? So it's just a number of things. And then, of course, when you're planning worship, you've got musicians and liturgists and you know all different kinds of people with their interests, pastors and teachers, trying to put their heads together to agree to what we're going to do in worship the next two or three yeah. weeks. Then on Tuesday, I would take off, and I would take half a day off. The other half, I would plan my men's Bible study, which I did every Thursday morning at 6.30, as you know. We had an hour-long, basically, Bible teaching, and I just worked expositionally through books of the Bible on Thursday mornings with men. Half of Tuesday would be devoted to that. Wednesday was a church day. Uh, Thursday, uh, I would work on my Sunday morning sermon. So that's what okay. I meant about working on yeah. a sermon, Sunday morning sermon on Thursday, with interruptions, but I'd be in my study all day Thursday, basically. Friday is another church day, and these are counseling times, premarital counseling, marital counseling, pastoral counseling of all sorts, meeting with staff that wanted individual meetings. Then on Saturday, I'd take another half day off, and then the, the latter half of Saturday, I'd complete the Sunday morning message. Now, if you put a gun at my head... Kind of polish it. Yes. If you put a gun at my head Thursday night, I could preach it. But the application and having it in my bones, it's going to be better because of Saturday afternoon. Now, one of the terms I I use when I think some about sermon preparation is marinating. And it seems like kind of the the early in the week you can get it in your mind and then leave it off and then come back to it. A lot of times, I don't know if it's the subconscious or having it uh, just floating around in there helps it grow. Did you find, you know, doing it on Thursday initially, leaving it alone a little bit and then coming back to it helped you develop it? It does. Also, you get away from that initial preparation and you realize, ah, I'm being way too technical. Yeah. Or that's boring. You know, I, that that needs to be applied and illustrated. I, I've got to think this through some more. So, yeah, yeah you get away from it and, and you start thinking more about your hearers mm-hmm. rather than the one who's delivering it. So I think that time is good. The other thing I'd say is this, two things. One is you'll notice I told you I'm right on the line between extroverted and introverted. So what yeah. did I do? Monday, Wednesday, Friday were people days. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday were internal days. So that suited my temperament. Mm-hmm. People tell me I have high energy and that I work hard and all that. Well, I do, and I do have high energy. But they don't realize I've got my way to squirrel away, and yeah. I, I'm renewed. 
you know, when I'm alone with the Lord and studying his word. And it seems like you've built in these kind of uh, cycles of refreshment and, and, and patterns that, that help deal with your personality and what it needs. That's right. Now, on preaching, the other thing about marinating is I suggest for preachers that you schedule your sermons way ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So my texts and titles are chosen between now, this is in December, between now and July. Yeah. And I'm often a full year ahead. Now, I can interrupt that anytime I want to. When mm-hmm. 9-11 took place, believe me, we had four sermons that were not previously scheduled. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally speaking, if you're going expositionally through books of the Bible, you can schedule it. Therefore, whenever I see a television program or hear something in the news, I'm yeah. thinking, what text does that apply to? Yeah. So I'm marinating on several sermons mm-hmm. all week long. So it's not just the week of. Uh, so I've got, of course, this week's sermon is yeah. especially in my head, but I, I'm thinking about other sermons too. Hmm. So that's the advantage of planning your text is that you you have filing categories yeah. for things that you're reading and hearing during the week. So you, if you hear something, you might think, oh, in a couple weeks, that might be applicable to what we're doing then. Absolutely. I mean, I had an illustration uh, last week uh, because we were talking about, you know, through him, all things were made, mm-hmm. you know, in John 1. A Stephen Hawking illustration pop, you know, came to me six weeks ago. Well, I just make a note of it. When you get yeah. to creation, you know, through the word, Christ, this will be applicable, and it was. So, yeah, you're always filing, uh, and if you'll plan, you can file better. Hmm. I'm going to move these. We're making too much noise for you. C.S. Lewis once referred to somebody as uh, one of those terribly annoying people who fails to talk with their hands. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and that's one thing I actually notice about good communicators is they use their hands a lot. I tend to underutilize mine, but I, I can tell you're a communicator just by the way you use your hands. But, yeah, when it rattles those, I just want to make sure the audio is clean. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> you not only use your hands— but let me tell you, you may know this story, but when Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, first went to Westminster Chapel, uh, you know, he was coming from Wales, and yeah. he, he was the new preacher, you know, at Westminster. And uh, the prior pastor had, had, you know, in his pulpit, he had a sort of a rail that went around the pulpit with a carpet, I mean, a, a, a drape on it. And Lloyd-Jones took the drape down. Hmm. And they said, why are you doing that? And he said, they've got to see my feet. <laughs> wow. And so, and I've, I've thought about that. I, I think it's true because what happens in preaching, I mean, you know, Wesley said it, people come to watch me set my fire, myself on fire and watch me burn. Mm. Yeah. So if you've got a message, you know, it's a burning message, and it, it affects your whole body and yeah. your whole soul. So I think... The, the one thing I do like about maybe the changing of the pulpits these days is that you see the whole preacher physically. Yeah. And there's something about that because I don't do it intentionally. It's just that I guess I speak with my hands because 
I, I'm I'm in this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just got me. <laughs> I, I have the problem of I'm in my head more than my body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, that's something I, you know, I try and be conscious about. All right, but you know, get it get it into the rest of your body. You, you know? know, we have therapists for that, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's true. I probably need that that as well. Did you preach from a from a manuscript or an outline, or would you just go up up there without ever, anything? I, I kind of changed around what I do and tried yeah. different things. Uh, what have you tried and what, what do you find works for you? Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I basically, like I say, have an oral manuscript. Okay. I don't have a photograph. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that I've thought it through. Yeah. I may have articulated it. I usually don't, but I have in my head, and it has a way of coming back to you. Mm-hmm. So if on Saturday I'm thinking through how I'm going to say this, that, and the other, those the very phrases yeah. come back to me without being in writing. So uh, I, I'm, I'm able to listen to myself yeah. and hold on to it. Now, the disadvantage of that is that if I want to publish something, it's the Dickens. Back. I've got to go back and rewrite everything. Charles they, Swindoll. They've got some programs now that if you play the sermon, it'll pull out. It'll 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 pull out all the words and type them up for you. Well, you need yeah, to look but, into yeah, that. but then look at your manuscript. It's a mess. See, the, the <laughs> yeah, reason there's that I'm, too many ums. Oh yeah, the reason <laughs> I'm oral is that I can make mistakes and you know you you can cover for yourself. Yeah, writing is very demanding. So I've always respected Chuck Swindoll. You know, he he reads a manuscript in mm. his sermons, but he delivers it so well that you would. But then know. he can go right to the publisher and have his sermons. I could never do that. I think there one thing I've found, you know, in the difference between writing or working from what you call a, a, an oral manuscript is the the difficulty of transitions. I find if I write out a sermon and then give it orally, and there's sometimes where I forget where the transitions are or things like that. And in my mind, you almost develop those more when you're doing the oral method because if it doesn't flow naturally you're going to forget it. Whereas with a manuscript, you know where the transitions are because there's a paragraph marker and, and things like that, which aren't necessarily communicated verbally to your audience who, who's getting it all as a, a single output. Yeah, I, I just prefer it because, as you said, I'm speaking with my hands even today. Uh, <laughs> but I guess by personality, yeah. I, uh, I'm a people person. So I want to look into your eyes and I want to see how you're responding to what I'm saying. Because if I think you're bored, I'm going to get your attention. Yeah. If I think you're puzzled, I'm going to go back and say it a different way. And I do that, you know, without even thinking about it. I'm looking into the eyes of my mm-hmm. ears, and I'm responding to them. So we actually have a dialogue going on. Yeah. And so in, in my way of communicating, I, I want to see my hearers. So I've been on stages before where the Klieg lights, you know, blind you. I don't like that. Yeah, uh, I want to. I want to be able to see my hearers and the whites of their eyes, and now I can tell whether we're connecting or not. So it's harder with Presbyterian audiences; they don't give you as much verbal feedback. They don't. <laughs> yeah, but you, if you're a Presbyterian, you can read them. Yeah, and so that's probably the reason that I'm an oral person. It's not just that's my preferred mode of delivery, but it's because I feel like I'm connecting with the congregation. Well, you kind of shuffle things around like you say, oh, man, I'm losing money to bring a story in here or, or yeah. pull something from another area. But it's so usually you kind cutting. Of, 
You're oh, just cutting as you go. Okay. Because I do find that I over, uh, you know, I put too much in there. Yeah. And so, I mean, I had to cut out some things just last week. And, I, you know, I feel like my left arm has been cut off, but they were <laughs> glad to get out on time. Yeah. Um, so in an American audience where you're limited by time in people's minds, they won't say it all the time, but they, they have an expectation. You know, you have to edit. So I just find I'd rather edit as I go. Mm-hmm. And like you say, when you're doing it orally, you, the the transitions come naturally, yeah. And to me, it's much more natural if I have everything in my heart and head, and now I'm just ready to talk to you. Yeah, I, I prefer that. I think I prefer to listen to someone like that. Mm-hmm. So basically, I develop my. But it's probably not for everybody. No, that's right. You, you and know, like I, I say, Chuck Swindoll's Dolls yeah. a master, and so you can you can preach from a manuscript and do quite well. Yeah. Uh, but just realize you're going to have to be personable. Yeah, if you're reading a manuscript, and you can do it. Yeah, yeah I think I think it's harder to be personal with. It is harder, and I, for that reason, I just preferred to work on the discipline of memory, mm-hmm. and of course, experience makes it so much easier. You know, when you're yeah. starting out, you're just so aware of yourself. You know, you can barely catch your breath. Yeah. But after you've after you've done 500 sermons, you, you feel more comfortable. Yeah. And it's more like just pastoral talking. With your congregation. You know, I even think of, you know, experimenting a little bit. Like, well, maybe I'll try it this way and, and see how it goes, what I can learn. And, so, you know, sometimes it's like, well, that was all right, but it's not for me. Or sometimes yeah, that's it right. falls flat on its face. You think, well, And that that's what your first years of preaching are all about. It's just getting your feet. And so I, I, you ask what I use. I progressed. I had a partial manuscript, and then I went to an outline. And now what I have is just my Bible. And I usually will have key words in the margin, mm. in pencil. And I've got a wide margin Bible. Yeah. So I can put a few notes there just to be sure that I've got the structure in front of me. So if I forget the details, I, I won't completely get off track. Yeah. But you have to be willing, if you go the route I'm going, you have to be willing to forget things. Yeah. You have to be willing to... Sometimes you've got to trust the Holy Spirit that you're forgetting the right things. Well, that's true too. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes think that. I think, Lord, help me to forget anything that's of me and not of you. Yeah. There's one temptation I, th- I think that's particular to preachers, and it's kind of, it's happened to me a couple times where I get done with a sermon, and I think this is a really great sermon about how great a sermon I'm doing, <laughs> and, and not about how great my God is. Are there, are there little things like that that you have that, kind of help you keep the focus and and not get, I don't know, turn preaching into grandstanding or things like that? Yeah. Well, this is a huge area of uh, interest about how you focus a sermon. I do believe we should be expounding a text. Yeah. This, you know, we should be dealing with the Word of God and we should be devoting ourselves to it in such a way that our hearers learn how to study the Bible themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you make it so highfalutin and complicated that no one can follow how you did it, then they're going to think their personal devotions are worthless. How can they possibly do what you do? Or or I think sometimes we have the temptation to to present our conclusions rather than our process, and it's like we're giving something that would be all right if they had been studying this for seven hours, but they're coming in and hearing it fresh and then getting the conclusion of seven hours or however long you've been working on it. Yes. But I think if you'll just go through the text and show them, I mean, the best comment that can be made on this uh, in this category is when 
a parishioner comes up to you and said, you know, I, it just seems so simple. I could do that, you know, when yeah. I study the Bible. That's what you want them to get. So simplicity, just honestly dealing with what's in the text, in the order the text presents it, is important. Now, having said that, we know everything in the Bible is about Christ. He said yeah. so in Luke 24. So it all leads to him. So if your sermon is not leading to him, you're not aware of your covenantal context. Where in the redemptive story are you? And if you're aware of that, it immediately will lead you to Christ because he's mm-hmm. the crowning event of the redemptive, whole redemptive story. Yeah. So the, everything in the Bible is in a place in the story. So one time I preached a sermon like the one you described. I thought it was really good, <laughs> theologically sound, intellectually interesting. I was kind of proud of myself, and I got some compliments in the narthex. So then I'm going back to my study, and on the way I go through the sanctuary, and there's one of our senior women, and she calls me over. She says, Pastor, uh, could I ask a favor? And I said, sure. She said, next Sunday, could you just talk about Jesus? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> that wrecks you, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that was 30 years ago, and honestly, yeah. I've never forgotten. I just realized, you know, you can do all kinds of fancy theological things, and you can forget what you're there for. Yeah. You know, it's to lead people to Christ through the Word. So he's got to be the center of everything, and not in some simplistic way, yeah. you know, with an invitation at the end. But the warp and woof of the whole Bible is him. So just stay in there until you find him, mm-hmm. you know, as you're studying. And to me, my best devotions really are sermon preparation. Mm. People say, I want to have my own devotional life. I say, I've got it, sermon preparation. How can you possibly prepare a sermon and do it non-devotionally? How can you prepare something for me that hasn't touched your heart and changed your life? I think I was reading about Wesley and the itinerant preachers, and that was one of the things they said. You know, they would they could they would preach like six or seven times a week on different topics, sometimes more. And they said the reason why they could do that is their devotional life and their preaching life were intertwined. Yes. So that they largely their ministry was, you know, expounding what they had been devoting themselves to. Exactly. So that when you're preaching, you're sharing your devotions. Yeah. You know, and you're asking them to devote themselves in the same way. I mean, it only makes sense. So the great privilege of being a Bible teacher or preacher is that you get more devotional time than anybody else. Yeah. (laughs) You get to make your living off of it. Oh, man, it's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. So kind of going, zooming back out, kind of the broad picture, you know, what have, what have been some of the most challenging times for you in ministry, and, and how did the Lord kind of bring you through it? What, what did you learn through those times, and kind of what's the difference between being in the midst of it and then looking back on it? Yeah. Well, the, the most difficult times are just when you're under attack and by people. Uh, now, the devil is involved in all of that. And it's complicated because you do enough bad stuff that if people want to criticize you, there's plenty to choose from. Yeah. But you, you'll find in uh, ministry that you get these irrational complaints and charges against you, mm-hmm. sometimes privately, sometimes publicly. And it can it can really take the wind out of your sails. Yeah. So uh, I've just found, you know, that what we all need is a softer heart and thicker skin. You just have to <laughs> it's be. It's a hard combination. Oh, man. And it's, but it's what you're gunning for. So I found that experience helps. 
with both the thicker skin and the softer heart. And those go together. If you have thin skin, you're going to have a hard heart. You may be faking it like you've got a soft heart, but you don't. You're thinking about yourself. You're thin-skinned. Yeah. So the thicker your skin gets, the less you think about yourself, the more compassion and pity you have for other people, even those who are attacking you. But I just found that personal attacks, uh, and it didn't happen a lot because I've been in such nice churches. Yeah. But even there, you know, you, you'll get these moments where sometimes you just feel besieged. I would say those are, those are difficult moments. And then a, the worst of all is when you really did mess up. They're not false charges. I mean, yeah. you're being critiqued for things you really did wrong. Yeah. And it's, it's depressing. Um, so the only way you can do this is with the gospel. You've got to be able to apply it to yourself. You're telling people every week, you know, that God loves sinners. Well, does he love you? Yeah. yeah do you believe it? <laughs> can you rejoice in it? Can you receive it? Well, you better. I mean, really, you're going to sound like a tin can if, if you can experience the gospel yourself. Mm. If you do experience it, it's going to come out of your pores. And you're going to have the wisdom to help other people through their besieging moments. But I would say this, some, to me, it was the personal attacks. Yeah. That, um, and, I, and like I said, I didn't have a lot of them, so I'm being a wimp. Were there, were there any principles that helped you kind of develop that thicker skin, softer heart? Yeah, I've just had some older brothers. I mean, I remember uh, one of my elders in the first church I served, he was a very fine mission uh, leader, a mission yeah. agency leader. And he's the one who told me, Sandy, you need a thicker skin, a softer heart. Mm. And uh, he, he, I just watched him. You know, he didn't overreact to criticism, but he didn't ignore it. And he was able, it was almost like an out-of-body experience where yeah. he could look at himself more objectively and not worry about himself, but just manage himself, just mm-hmm. manage himself. And I just learned, you know, you need to be able to do that. Just manage Almost yourself. treating yourself like a congregant. Exactly. And so the, the more you do that, the better you're able to do it, the, the more useful you are. Mm-hmm. Self-perception is really important in ministry. If you don't understand how you're being perceived, you're going to make all kinds of errors. You have to be humble enough to be able to understand your place in people's lives and how they perceive you. And if you have either insecurity or a highly vaulted view of yourself, you're not going to be able to do that. Somebody who mentored me once said, the most important thing, question to ask anytime you receive criticism, is there any truth in that? Yeah. You know, even, right. even though they might be angry or irrational, even though they might exaggerate. Is there any truth in it? And, 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 you know, usually our, as you say, our first reaction is kind of defensive and, and, and posturing and counterattack, but, but being able to, all right, let's take a look at that criticism. Is there any truth in it? And sometimes I feel like, you know, for myself, the, the more I react to it, the more, the more likely there's some truth in it. You know, if, if, if somebody calls me skinny, that's going to go off my back pretty easy because I know that's <laughs> not true. If somebody says, hey, you're getting kind of chunky, kind of fat. I'm going to get upset about that, not because it's false, but because it's true. Yeah. No, that's well said. And the, all my, I mean, I can't think, as I think back on all the critiques I've gotten, I can't think of one of them that didn't have a kernel of truth in mm. it. Not one. So you're exactly right. But also, I, I remember what Spurgeon said when a woman critiqued him, uh, he said, Madam, 
you don't know the half of it. <laughs> yeah. So you have to realize. If they really knew, they'd have a lot oh better my critiques. Goodness. And I've thought often how foolish the devil is. He, he could have wiped me out if he had been just wiser, but he went for the juggler and missed, you know? Yeah. And so I've, I've often realized the devil doesn't even, even know the half of it because he didn't know yeah. my heart. <laughs> you know, he could attack me in, in much fairer ways. Hmm. So yeah, none of us deserve not to be criticized. Yeah. Even though the particular criticism may be unjust humanly. Yeah. Overall, it's a flea bite compared to what you deserve. Yeah. So looking for the truth while kind of maintaining the application of God's grace into your own yeah. life kind of seems key in, in, in what I'm drawing out of what you're saying. Yeah. Now there's there's something else you mentioned um, and, and I thought it was a really interesting idea at the time. And you mentioned kind of, you know, in, in, in your church and the churches that you've been a part of, uh, you're considered an elder and in, in many ways you're leading, but then there's, there's times in which, you know, the elder board, they go with a decision that you don't, didn't agree with, weren't lobbying, lobbying for. And then you mentioned ways in which you kind of, um, model leadership in, in those situations. Would you kind of ex- explain your, your views on that and how to handle it? Because I thought it was really insightful. Well, there's kind of a combination. You know, if you're, of course, I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective of a senior or solo minister you know, yeah. who is the, the key leader humanly. So I think there's a combination of taking initiative, mm-hmm. which I think a senior minister should do with staff and with officers. But then... Uh, listening carefully and building consensus and then putting into practice the consensus that's developed. And the consensus that's developed is usually not your original idea. Mm. How how important is it in, I I think this step is is sometimes skip, how important is listening to building consensus, do you think? Oh, absolutely essential. You can't build consensus without listening. How, how do you draw people's views out so that you can hear them? Well, as, as the they have to leader? see in you that you're willing to take contrary ideas. Okay. And if you get red in the face or look at your shoes or change the subject or try to bulldoze them, they'll stop bringing you contrary ideas and you lose the advantage of the gifts of the people in your group. It, it, that can be a really toxic place because I feel like as a minister, if if you disregard any of the ideas that are contrary to your own, there can be all these contrary ideas that exist, but you just don't hear them. People don't, don't approach you. And I've heard stories of pastors um, who were surprised that they were fired because of situations like that. Well, I would say I'm talking about people who are in your inner core to begin okay. with. People you generally trust. Mm-hmm. And you just really have to listen to them. Now, I may, if you're on my executive team or one of my key pastors and we disagree, I'm going to listen to you very carefully. If I think you're off base and I can't go with you, then I'm going to explain to you why. Now, that is a very important moment. It does two things. It shows respect, mm-hmm. intellectual respect for you, that I owe you a rationale because you're a trusted colleague. You, you're not only given the what, but you're given the why. Yeah. Secondly, if I'm the senior minister and I'm trying to cultivate everybody, I might be able to cultivate you by teaching you why I can't go in that direction. I'll probably influence you at least a little bit. Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, whether you are or not, you're a good man, and so you'll defer to the senior man, and as long as it's not immoral, and uh, and support what we're doing. And it also gives them tools to support the institution. If they don't know why they're doing That's it, right. then even I've found posi- uh, being in a position where I have to defend a decision I didn't agree with. Right. But it's the institution's decision. Right. And it's not and, unethical. It's, yeah. It's, you know, it's a prudential issue. And then, but the better I, the better I know the reasons why it occurred, the more I'm going to be able to defend that to people who um, are like me and confused by the decision initially. That's right. And it also allows you to disagree with the rationale. So if I don't give you my rationale, it's just an authoritarian, nope, we're going to do it this way. Mm -hmm. If I give you rationale, I'm inviting you to disagree with the rationale. So now you know why I'm doing what I'm doing, and therefore you can critique the rationale. So it actually, by explaining to you what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, it allows you to critique even more. Mm-hmm. Well, here's why I continue to disagree with you, Sandy, because that's exactly it, just your rationale you gave. And it'll invite you to come into it. So then what you're looking for as leader then is once you put your idea out, you listen to other ideas, you're looking for consensus, you're really looking for that consensual idea that we all buy into mm-hmm. as much as possible. And that's the way I've always led. I have strong ideas, but yeah. I want your ideas. And then you inevitably will reshape my original idea. Mm-hmm. Now, when I get to the officers, same way. Now, you asked a question about when they disagree. Yeah. Okay. At Second Presbyterian Church over 22 years, I probably had it happen about four times. That was mm-hmm. about it. Where the session went— in And a that's great, probably low because of the process you instituted. I think so, plus the fact that, hey, look, it's a great church. Yeah. It's a unified church with mature elders, and I know— uh, I couldn't say that about the first church I pastored. Mm-hmm. You know, and most guys are going into churches that have a lot more work, kind of like Nehemiah had yeah. to do, you know. So, but in my case, I only had about four of these instances. Now, when they happened, in every case, I would say to those who were on the minority side, which was my side, mm-hmm. uh, gentlemen, here's how we're going to leave this room. We're all going to put into effect the action we just passed by majority rule. Yeah. And I'm going to be the front, and I put myself at the front of that line. So I'm going to cheerfully implement what this session decides. So they learn from me that the pastor doesn't have to have his way all the time. Yeah. They also learn from me when you're on the minority side, I'm going to expect the same behavior out of you. Mm-hmm. So I, those are your opportunities to model how you collaborate with your brothers when you didn't get your way. Yeah. So be sure and take full advantage of those moments when you lose a vote. That's what I would say. And I, th- I think that's huge, too, just for, you know, prioritizing the unity of the body of Christ Absolutely. over my own agenda. That's right. Which I think tears a lot of churches apart because there's that temptation to think, well, me and God have this view and everybody else is wrong. I have found through the years, maybe with one exception, that every time the session disagreed with me, they ended up being right. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a pretty humble thing to admit. Well, no, it's just true. I mean, uh, yeah. any individual who puts his will up front, I mean, if you have a godly session, you can expect that, that when you're on the minority side, you usually missed it, mm-hmm. generally. <laughs> and so I happily go along with them. Yeah. We've had capital campaigns I didn't agree with, and I was up front enthusiastically supporting it. The congregation thought it was my idea. <laughs> yeah. 
And I think that's what a senior minister must do. You must represent your session. Now, if you need to argue it out, go argue. But do it, in, do it with your leaders and then come out together and implement the majority opinion. Yeah. Uh, is there... I mean, you've you've been talking a little bit about leadership and and gaining consensus there. In the presentation to the congregation rather than the session or those trusted leaders, uh, how is building consensus different with them than it is with those leaders? Yeah, well, in a large church, which is what second is, you by the time you get to the congregational level, it's a fait accompli. I mean, you're not really looking for much input. Yeah. The input they have is to elect their elders. Mm-hmm. And you tip them off early enough that certain things are being considered, and if they want to jawbone any elder, they can go do it. Okay. So by the time, for example, you have a capital campaign, well, before we would ever do that, oh, we've talked to 100 members okay. in private. Yeah. We debriefed them, gotten their ideas. So by the time we come out publicly to the congregation, it looks like we're just saying, hey, we're going in this direction. But, hey, the in direction reality, we're going is the direction you wanted to go in. <laughs> yeah. So You've it, done a lot of research that's before right. that. That's right. Okay. okay so that makes when you're sense. leading a large group, you do your research and figure out what is attainable by this group, mm-hmm. you know, in normal terms. And then do something that's attainable. Now, God's the God of miracles, so yeah. he can do some amazing things. And sometimes you have to... You have to take them beyond what they thought was reasonable. Hmm. But generally speaking, in church leadership, under ordinary non-revival times, you're leading people to the fringes of what they see as an attainable objective. Yeah. Uh, If you were talking to somebody just starting out in ministry, or if you went back and encountered yourself in the beginning of your ministry, uh, what would be advice that you would pass on? I would say, look, you've got to have your whole life integrated into your ministry and your ministry integrated into your life. Some young guys think they've got to protect their private life by putting up boundaries, you know, uh, here's where ministry stops and my personal life begins. And I, I don't think that works. If you want to know how you're going to flourish over a long period of time, how you're going to endure all the hardships and happily persevere through these difficulties, it's because it's your life. It's not something you do. Hmm. And I think too many guys, it's almost like they have a career of ministry and then they have their personal life. And they, they overlap, but yeah. they're, they're separated. And I'm saying, you, I don't think you can do that. So if Allison were not in this all the way, my wife, yeah. if my children were not flourishing, I quit. In order to minister to them? Yeah, that's right. If, if, if they would be better off spiritually... By my being a steel salesman like I was 40 years ago, that's what I'm going to go do. So I, the calling for me is not to be a pastor. The calling is to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, that's the only calling you have in the Bible is to be a Christian or an apostle. Yeah. And since we don't have any more apostles, the only calling you've got is to be a Christian. And your calling, so to speak, to be a pastor is by inference. It's not revealed. It's, it's inferred. Your calling to be a Christian is revealed. You're infallibly regenerated by the Holy Spirit to be a Christian. That's your calling. So then, if I'm a pastor, it's by inference, sanctified inference, prayerfully determined, with strong impulses, all that's true. But it's still 
an inference I'm making about this is the best way for me to live my Christian life is by being a pastor. So I integrate my personal life completely into this. So your then, identity determines your activity. Exactly. That's how you survive, and not just survive, but abound. It's that you're in it, body and soul, just because you believe this is the best way for you to serve Jesus, and that's what it's all about. So all of your personal spiritual life, all of your values, everything, it's invested into what you're doing, just like it is when you take a vacation with your family. You're invested completely. Mm-hmm. So I'm always invested, totally. That's, that's the way you move through it and the way you learn because you humble yourself to figure out how to be the best Christian you can be. And as long as you're a pastor, that's your occupational expression of your Christian faith. So I just think 24-7 is the best way to organize your life. It's all integrated. So if my son has a basketball game at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's on my calendar. Yeah. It's a sacred moment. Or if I have devotions with my family and we have dinner and then I go back out to go to the hospital... That, too, is a sacred moment to visit with a parishioner. And my family embraces it, and they've all benefited from it. Uh, The key, the real key emotionally is your wife. Um, She has to be in 100%. I don't don't know if I'll I'll call it attention, and you can correct that if you you feel like it's wrong. Kind of the the tension or temptation uh, between kind of two poles. One is... Um, ignoring your family for the sake of of ministry, and the other you've you've kind of mentioned a little bit of ignoring ministry for the sake of family. How do you how do you deal with kind of those two poles that can be at odds at, at times yeah. with one another? Well, I like I say, I think it really is based on the marriage. Mm-hmm. So you need to be married to a godly woman who's ministry oriented. If you're not, you shouldn't be in full-time pastoral ministry. It just don't work. It's not going to work. There are many things you can do, and you don't need to do this. So if your wife is not enthusiastically supportive of it, don't, don't do it. Now, having said that, how do you balance these things out? Well, look, I can be the past senior minister of a 3,500 membership church, which demands about 65 to 70 hours a week mm-hmm. for someone of my limited skill to be effective. I have to put in that kind of time. Yeah. Or I could be the solo minister of a smaller church and put in about 45 or 50 hours a week. And I can just say to my wife, which would you prefer? Mm-hmm. I'm open to either one. So I would never do what I did at second without a wife like the one I had. Mm-hmm. If I felt that she were stressed by my 65-hour-a-week work in ministry, I'd quit. And I'd go do something that suits her. So my job is to place before her the options. We can do this with this salary, live in this city with these schools, or we can do this with this salary and live in this house with these schools, or we can do this that's, you know, parachurch, or we can, I can go back to selling steel. And here would be our lifestyle in each case. And honey, you know, whichever you'd like to do, I'm, I'm happy to pull the trigger on any of them. So basically, my wife is the one that decided what house we live in, where our kids go to school, and, and what church I pastor. Yeah. She's the one who decided we'd come to second. Now, I agreed with her. I thought, I thought we made a good choice. But, but I'm not coming if she's not in on that lifestyle. Yeah. Now, if she's particularly cooperative like my wife is, then you have to also be gifted at looking into their eyes and reading them 
and see if they're flourishing. So if I thought that I needed more time in family, but they wouldn't tell me, I'd still quit and go do something else with less salary, less privileges, less time away, and more devoted to the family. That That's a choice you have to make, but I just think your wife really has to help you with that. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, 65 hours a week. You didn't do that 52 weeks a year, did you? Well, no. I mean, I had vacation and study okay. leave. Yeah. So the, uh, talk about those two things. How, how are those Im- important, do you feel like, for long-term viability yeah. in ministry? Okay. First of all, your rhythms have to be better than annual rhythms. If, if you find yourself looking forward to a—I mean, everybody now is talking about sabbaticals, and I think sabbaticals are fine and they're good yeah. ideas. But if you keep looking toward the sabbatical or you can't wait for your vacation, something's wrong with your weekly schedule. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be— Burned out like that. Now, I do admit when May comes along, I'm ready for June and to get away and study and be by myself for a while. I agree. Yeah. But it's not till May. Yeah. So my It's dude, not in August. <laughs> that's right. If it happens in, in January, I'm 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 not managing my life very well. So you have to be sure your week has rest in it. Your week has rhythms. You're being renewed every day and every week and not waiting for some you know, behemoth vacation or getaway yeah. to restore your soul. That's just an unhealthy way to live. It's like trying to have a good nutritional diet by getting away two weeks every year and eating mm-hmm. well. That's a it's good just, example. It just doesn't work. So get the whole week right. Now, you say, well, how did you do that with 65 hours? Well, I don't know. Just watch me. I mean, <laughs> now I have high energy. Yeah. So what I was doing suited my energy level and my wife's and her emotional need level. And everybody can't do that. Were you also in a position where you could delegate some of the areas you felt less competent or gifted in to other people? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's one reason that I preferred the larger church. Yeah. It, it, the larger church actually covers more sins yeah. than the smaller church. The smaller church, you're, you're exposed because mm-hmm. you're expected to do everything. Mm-hmm. And in a larger church, you can specialize and so my weaknesses were more, much more nicely covered. Was there, was there a period of time where you kind of realized, hey, I'm more of a specialist than a generalist? Yes. When was that in ministry for you? Uh, I would say by the time I'm 30, you know, early 30s, I know I want to be a pastor. Okay. But not until then. Then I would say for me it was 43. Okay. I knew the particular type of pastoral ministry that suited my gifts and weaknesses the best. And, and that's when I came to second. Okay, and j- just for listeners to kind of think in these terms of categories, what did you think, hey, this is in my wheelhouse, and hey, this is stuff that's out of my wheelhouse, I maybe need a delegate or hire to protect those weaknesses? Okay, I was afraid you are going to ask that because <laughs> uh, now you're exposing my weaknesses that get covered, and here's what they are. I, uh, and I'm embarrassed, uh, but... Well, you shouldn't be. I believe the, in the body of Christ. That means you can't function as a hand and a foot and be competent well, in both. I know, and I agree with that. But but only in theory. <laughs> well, no, I agree with it. I agree with it completely. But I just have to add to it and say that my weaknesses are not just lack of gifting. It's the lack of heart. Mm. And that's what I'm embarrassed about. So, okay, let me tell you what it is. I always felt that I was not the first one to respond to emergencies. 
to go see people in the hospital when they need to be visited. I mean, for example, your dad is unbelievable at that. Yeah. He has a pastor's heart. He's incredible. He's in showed fact, up before fa- other family members have. Before. Well, listen, he <laughs> showed up. No, no, no. This is your dad who pastored First Evangelical here in Memphis and, you know, my best pastoral friend. I would have my members in the hospital, and he would see them before <laughs> I did. He would visit my members because he knew them and loved them. Yeah. And he would just put things aside. Your dad, of course, is a great biblical scholar and preacher and teacher, but he had a heart. He has a heart. And I just felt like I never had the size heart he does, and it embarrasses me. But, but for He's the also sake, much less scheduled. Well, yeah, your, yeah, your dad would <laughs> He's say— He's the polar opposite of you well, in that regard, okay, too. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Your dad would say I'm an administrative mess. That's another issue we're not talking about. But on, yeah. when it comes to pastoral care— uh, I felt, by comparison, I'm not even in the same league as he is. But uh, So the church is better off without that being my primary responsibility. Yeah. I had to realize that. And I worked on it for a dozen years. I mean, I, w- people expected me to be there, and I grunted and groaned and did the best I could. But I never yeah. reached the Ronnie Stevens status. So, so I've just realized, okay, I'm better off in a larger church where we have pastors who regularly are in the hospitals and ministering to people who are hurting, and they cover a lot of my sins. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not in the hospital. I am. It just means I don't have to be the first one there, mm-hmm. and it's not for everybody. It's usually the leaders that I'm pastoring that that way. Yeah. So that's just one. There are others, but that's you know I think that's enough embarrassment for me today. <laughs> um, but so when you're in a larger church, you can specialize, and if you're the senior leader. You're the one who's connecting with the outside world, which I, I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And you're the one interpreting the world and culture to your church. And so or you're one of the key ones. And so I enjoyed that role. And you're leading the external mission. I enjoy that role. So it heightened the things in teaching and preaching, yeah. which I really felt like, okay, this, this is what I love to do. Now, that's interesting. You, you mentioned that you're kind of the contact person with with the outside world. Uh, what would you say to a pastor who's kind of struggling to uh, be in the, tr- trying to be in the world more, but not of the world? Um, I, I think it, particularly as a pastor, you can be so insulated, spend all your time around church folks and church people and just uh, be engrossed and isolated and cloistered in that world. Um, how, how did you get in the world to have a better way to explain the world. Yeah, I would say a couple things. One is, if you're in a small town, look, you can be friends with the mayor. <laughs> yeah. And now if you're in a large city like ours, but you're in a large church like I was, you can you can be friends with the mayor. Okay? So I need to be friends with the mayor. I need to be friends with the the uh, the editor of the newspaper. I need to be friends with uh, the superintendent of the public schools. And I want to know from them, what are you struggling with? What are the big issues in city government right now? What are the big issues in the public schools? And I download all that information, and it'll show up in my sermons. Yeah. So my sermons need to reflect that I'm connected. Now, if I'm in a small town, I can get to know the mayor. I could go down and see the high school principal. He'd love to go to lunch with me. Yeah. He would love for some pastor to be interested in what he does. So go down and... And or call the high school principal and say, hey, look, you don't know me, but I'd really like to know how our high school works. Would you explain this to me? Mm-hmm. He would love to explain it to you. And you're going to be an expert after one two-hour lunch yeah. on, the, on the county school system and on our local high school. Man, you're going to know him. He's going to be your friend. You can quote him. 
Woo! That helps a lot with yeah. preaching. And it also helps with your school teachers that are in your school in your church. Oh man, so you know Mr. So and so. Oh well, yeah, he's my boss. Yeah, I know. He's he thinks a lot of you. We talked about you. I mean, yeah. you know, it just connects you with people's world. The same thing you can go to the local hospital, ask to meet the chief administrator, take him to lunch, and ask him how medical care is working in your county. I mean, all these ways you need to be connected to the real world your people are living in. Now, I enjoy that. Yeah. Now, getting out of the office to go do that, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, you're, you're getting excited right now <laughs> that's just talking right. about it's it. selfish. It's just that's the part that embarrasses me is that there's a part of it that's missional and strategic, yeah. and there's a part of it, hey, Sandy loves to do that. <laughs> well, I I think it's okay to have some joy as a Christian in oh, ministry. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, that's right. And sometimes your flesh actually, in your flesh there's no good thing, but sometimes it collaborates. <laughs> um, you also mentioned in our last conversation, and especially coming from a non-ministry vocation, switching into ministry, you kind of noticed people started treating you differently uh, once you were a pastor or had that title. And uh, you, you kind of described to me there were certain ways you you leaned into that. Can you explain kind of how you noticed that and what your strategy was for dealing with it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I leaned against it. I mean, I didn't mm-hmm. like it. Um, and there are various reasons for it. I just, I, I, I was kind of embarrassed to be a pastor, I think. Yeah. It seemed, maybe the Hollywood had gotten to me. It just seemed to be a weak role with weak people who were just nice all the time, didn't really have much spine. <laughs> yeah. And it just the the whole image of being a pastor, I didn't want. And what happened was, after about three years of pastoral ministry, I realized that my embarrassment was not just occupational. I was actually embarrassed by the gospel because the pastor is a public representative of yeah. the gospel itself. So I repented. So it used to be, when I was initially a pastor, the last thing I'm going to ask you on on the airplane is, what do you do for a living? Because I don't want you to ask me. <laughs> yeah. After my conversion to embracing the pastoral office, the first thing I ask you is, what do you do for a living? Because I want you to ask me. Because when you do, I'm going to be able to say, well, you know, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, and my interest is in people's spiritual life. Tell me about yours. Yeah. So, you know, these poor lay people, they have to talk about football and the weather and all kinds of things to build a bridge. I don't have to build a bridge. You have I a just go right bridge. for the juggler. Yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. It's my profession. So I found once I embraced my role in life, and that's what I mean by integration. Yeah. You want to be friends with me? I'm a pastor. So if you're friends with me, you'll have a pastor as your friend. And my interest in our conversations will be pastoral because yeah. that's who I am. So once I adopt that, take that cloak on, it changes everything. And now I'm aggressively engaged in the mission regardless of the person I'm conversing with. What were some of the things that you noticed changed once you embraced that? I I noticed that once you see yourself as a pastor, so does everybody else. So it's like self-respect. Don't expect me to respect you if you don't respect yourself. I'm cueing off of you. And if you'll show respect for your own time and energy and commitments, you know, it inspires a respect in me. Same thing, if, if I respect my office and I know what I'm doing and I know I have every right and responsibility to ask you about your relationship with Jesus Christ, it may take you aback a little bit, but eventually you'll say, well, I guess he's right. Maybe he does have a right to ask me that. <laughs> yeah. 
most of the time. Now, sometimes yeah. it's offensive. Too bad for you. But, <laughs> you know, uh, it begins with seeing yourself as a spiritual leader. And I tell elders this, too. Biggest problem the elders have is not seeing themselves as elders. Hmm. They don't realize the authority they have as a as a as an elder in the church. That's really interesting. I've, I've, I was reading something this morning, actually, that was about the Puritans' view of uh, church leadership and and how essentially m- most of the persecution they endured was based around their views of church government yeah. and, and what a high regard they had for it. And uh, as somebody who's in an even lower church setting than than you as a Presbyterian, that's something I'm really trying to trying to think through and em- embrace and understand better. You know, Woodrow Wilson was president of Princeton University. He was president of the United States. He said the highest honor I ever had was being elected an elder in the Presbyterian Church. Oh, wow. You know, so he was a churchman. He understood that that trumps everything. It defines who you are more than your occupation does. You know, so if you're an elder in the church, you're a shepherd. That, that There's no, you can't go any higher, if I could put it that way, than being a shepherd. Jesus was a shepherd. He wants every human being to be a shepherd. And so you're appointed a particular type of shepherd in the church. You're modeling what the new humanity is to be about. So embrace it. Take it on. One of the things I've I've thought about recently, I'm just going to throw it out and, and see if you have any thoughts, is you know, having a rightly ordered life, in, and one of the things I think of in, in terms of order is relational. And am, am I rightly ordered under Christ, and am I rightly ordered over the things he's given me responsibility for? In, in ministry in particular, uh, how do you view, view those dynamics? Well, it's like Paul, you know, you plan, and then the Holy Spirit says, I got other plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Steve Brown used to say, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's half the truth. The other half is you should plan. So you've got important things to do. So let's plan to the best of our ability and then expect God to interrupt and give you his plan. So it's both and. So you organize things under you, but the most important thing is you're being organized by the deity. Mm-hmm. And you're humbling yourself under his word, and you're also humbling yourself under his providence. And you realize that he's taking charge of your life. You know, if you get a diagnosis of cancer, like I did, that changes your schedule. Yeah. And the things you have to put your time into, that's God's providence. I humble myself under that and realize he's teaching me certain things. So it's both and. And that's what Paul did when he couldn't go into Bithynia and the Lord took him to Macedonia. It was because God trumped his plans. And fortunately, Paul, although strong-willed person, he was able to have this sort of sensitivity to the work of the Spirit in his life. So he headed off for Macedonia, not knowing where he was going. Think about it. He traveled week upon week not knowing where in the world (laughs) the Spirit was taking him. All he knew, he was supposed to go west. Hmm. So he gets to the end of Asia. He's run out of (laughs) landmass. Still doesn't know where he's going until he has the dream Mm -hmm. and the vision of the Macedonian man. So... Paul was sensitive to the providence of God even when he didn't know where in the world it was taking him. And we have to be the same way. I think that's one of the hardest places to be in ministry is, it to, is. to know you're not at your final destination and to not know where the Lord's redirecting that's you right. yet. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like once I get the lesson, I'm okay with what God's doing, but to be okay before you get the lesson, before you get the final answer, just, um, living properly under that providence. Any any tips for that? (laughs) My flesh hates it. Well, just keep reading the Bible. Yeah. Just keep studying people. I mean, Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. What am I doing out here? I'm kind of enjoying life, you know, with my family. But for 40 years, doesn't have his direct ministry. And then at 80 years of age, he gets appointed. I mean, you just study, study the Bible and see that God uses people at different times. And that doesn't mean that you're always in the fast lane, you know, for 80 years. Sometimes you feel sidetracked. And those are very constructive times. Even the Apostle Paul, he gets converted. He tries to preach, has some effect. But everybody's relieved when he leaves the city because he's causing trouble. So yeah. what does he do? He studies for 14 years, mm-hmm. learns the Old Test, relearns the Old Testament from a Christocentric perspective, and then he's ready to come out for the next 20 years and be the chief apostle. So those those 14 to 17 years were extremely important. And if he had been just coddling himself, he wouldn't have been ready for the 20 years of his last 20 years. So I would just say, you know. You think you're side road. You think, you think you've been forgotten. No, 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 no. This is a very important constructive time. You just have to keep preaching to yourself. Yeah. Those are, those are helpful illustrations to remind us of our, God's goodness even when we don't understand his providence. That's right. Well, Sandy, I could keep asking you questions all day, but please don't. Let's go get something to eat. <laughs> all right, but I just want to thank you so much for your for your time and for sitting down and just sharing the ways in which God has uh, worked in you, on you, and, and through you. And appreciate your ministry uh, in this city and and now um, in in other areas. Uh, I, I just have enjoyed this so much. Thank you. Thanks, Seth. Great to be with you. Next time, we'll be interviewing Dr. James Allman, one of the smartest people I know, and someone who will bring a little bit more of a literal sense to the idea of surviving ministry. If this podcast has been encouraging to you, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at survivingministrypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, congratulations, you survived this podcast.